And we're back, David Emmett, the Paddock Pass podcast, back once again. And it's been a while since we were actually able to bring a podcast. It's been a fairly hectic last couple of weeks, but uh, we'll guide our listeners through the last couple of weeks of the flyaways and look back on the season. So Steve English and David Emmett here on the Paddock Pass podcast this week. And uh, we're just sitting, getting ready for the Valencia Grand Prix, the last round of the year. And David, it's been a while since we had a Paddock Pass podcast. It's been a while since we were all in a room together. But uh, looking ahead to this weekend in Valencia, it's an exciting end to the season. Yeah, I mean, and a proper celebration, I think, as well, because there's nothing left on the line. So everyone is just... Um, a lot of people still with uh, with things they want to prove. Danny Pedrosa retiring, obviously. He's had a win every season he's been racing, um, except for this one. So he wants to win. Mark, uh, Mark Marquez wants to win here. Um, you know, it's his home Grand Prix. He wants to finish the season in style. Um, uh, Lorenzo, this is a track he loves. You know he wants to uh, he wants to go out. Uh, he wants to leave Ducati from uh, you know with a with a bang. He wants to show him uh, once again what they're uh, what they're losing. Uh, yeah, it's a, it, it's a it's a real celebration, and it's um, it's always a, it's always just a great Grand Prix. I mean, it's it's not a great track, but it's just an absolutely fantastic event. Yeah, and it really is a good end of the season. We've got the test then after the Valencia Grand Prix, and then we'll go on to Jerez as well for the first Moto E test, Moto Tour test, and then as well Superbikes and Moto GP. So it's a busy stretch now for a couple of weeks for us. But we'll take stock of the season so far, the season that we've we've had in 2018 in Moto GP on this show, because obviously with it being three weeks since we were actually able to have a podcast last, everyone's been able to sit down, they've watched the races, they know what happened. But we've got quite a lot to talk about, actually. Mark Marquez has won the championship since the last time we were on air. We had a great race in Phillip Island. We had a great battle at the front last time out in Sepang. But we'll look back on the year and just ask one question, David. Could anyone have stopped Marquez this year? Um, no. Uh, is the short answer. The long answer is... Well, the long answer is maybe, but not after... Uh, I think basically after, shall we say, Le Mans. Uh, the championship was pretty much over. Um, uh, for me, uh, the big, uh, the, the big event was, um, uh, first of all, the three-way crash where Lorenzo, Pedrosa and, uh, and Dovicioso all came together at Jerez, uh, while they were chasing Marcus. They all crash out. They all lose a lot of points. Um, uh, Dovi was, you know, a little bit sitting pretty, it seemed, at the start of the season. Uh, but, uh, obviously that was, that put a big dent in his season. And then he crashed again at Le Mans, an unforced error almost. The front just got away from him, um, while he was sitting fairly comfortably, uh, uh, uh at the front again. And, uh, from that point, you knew he was going to be chasing. Um, but for me, I think what's been most impressive is just been Mark Marcus' consistency. The fact that when he's finished, um, when he's finished, in the points uh, and hasn't had a penalty or crashed um, he's been on the podium and that's uh, really quite a remarkable achievement as far as uh, as far as I'm concerned yeah and that's the one thing that probably has stood out most about Mark over the course of this year obviously five years into his MotoGP career he's finally really added that consistency to the speed that we've seen over the last few years and uh, this year he clearly has made a big step forward with that regard and when you look at the numbers through the course of the season obviously we've got one round left but Mark's only been in positions four and lower for about 30 laps through the course of this year and when you look at how inconsistent other riders have been how up and down their seasons have been it really is a testament to how he managed to win this championship and as you said David I think Hareth is going to be that pivotal moment that we look back on over the course of this season and think, you know what, that was probably the one singular moment that really did shift the balance towards Mark because immediately following that, then you've got Le Mans and Davi's crash, then he crashes in Catalonia as well, and that's three crashes for Davi. Yeah. And you can't you can't give Marquez that kind of a head start over the course of a season. No, I mean when when Mark Marquez is finishing on the season uh, on the podium every single race. Uh, then you simply cannot afford to 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 throw points away like um, uh, like basically like all of his uh, all of his rivals there did. I mean, I I think um, the, the the fact that Marquez wrapped the championship up at Mategi so early um, is an exaggeration of the strength of the championship because it looks like um, Marquez completely dominated the championship and he 
uh, I think it would be wrong to say that he dominated the championship. He was clearly the best rider, um, um, but he had a little bit of help, a little bit, perhaps an awful lot of help from his rivals, from people crashing. Um, let's see, I mean, Jorge Lorenzo didn't really get going until Mugello, once they've Ducati bought him the um, uh, uh, bought all of the bits and pieces that uh, that he'd been hoping for uh, the the new tank uh, or the, yeah the the new tank unit they've been messing around with his tank and the seat and the bars and everything else for a long time. Um, uh, Danny Pedrosa off to a decent start has a um, has a crash at uh, Argentina is injured for a little while loses confidence uh, he struggles for the rest of the season for a uh, for a uh, looking for a setup. Which only happened a few times, um, so he could never take it. To, uh, never really take it. To, and you know the Yamahas, um, the Yamahas were pretty much absent for most of the season, really. So there was, uh, I mean, again, Marquez was the best rider of the, of the year for me, um, but there were, uh, there was nobody to really take to take the fight to him. I mean, the, his rivals kept on tripping themselves up. Yeah, and that's the one thing for me of why Jerez was so singularly important. It was Danny's second crash of the season. He crashed in Argentina and he crashed in Jerez where there was potential for good results there in both of those races for Pedroza. And suddenly he puts himself in the gravel trap twice in those races. He's facing an uphill task for Lorenzo. He crashes out of the lead in Jerez. Maybe if he has a good result in Hareth, it doesn't take him quite so long to find his form during the course of the season. Davi's crashed out in those three races. So his three big rivals, they're all facing that uphill task through the season. And as you said then, when you com- combine that with Yamaha struggling so badly, it was almost a perfect storm for Marquez to win this championship early. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, to go back to, to, uh, to Danny Pedrosa, it wasn't so much that he put himself in the gravel, it was other people putting himself in the gravel. And riders don't mind crashing when they understand why they crashed um but uh, you know he was you know not nudged off the bike or he was nudged offline by uh, zarco at um uh, onto the onto a wet patch by zarco at argentina high sides ends up fracturing his wrist um uh, 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 again what was the what was the Jerez, the Jerez incident where there's the, the the three of them basically came together on um intersecting uh, lines more than anything else you can't really point the finger and say that was definitely his fault or his fault or whatever there was just all three of them were trying to occupy the same piece of tarmac and that rarely um, air, rarely ends well uh, so yeah I mean uh, those crashes I think are much more confidence sapping than just uh, a crash like Dovich for example where he goes into the corner, he knows he's pushing a little bit too much, he knows he's a little bit offline, uh, the front goes, and then you can just think, that was stupid, shouldn't have done that. But this is, um, this is, this seems to be very much, uh, this seems to be very different. Yeah, and for, you mentioned Yamaha as well, David, and through the course of the season, it really has been an uphill task for Yamaha, but they've actually, in the case of Rossi in particular, been able to grind out consistent results and keep themselves somewhat at the at the sharp end of the championship. Rossi is sitting third in the championship as we speak, and and was second for a long time. And it's been such a disappointing year for him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, uh, we spoke a lot this year about the fact that uh, uh, you know Yamaha went twenty five race where, where wins uh, races without a win, and it took Maverick Vinales, it, just an amazing ride at uh, at Phillip Island, to actually to actually bring that streak to an end. Um, but uh, they got a bunch of podiums uh, they were always there or thereabouts um, they were never um, it wasn't like in, if you like the you know 2011 2012 2013 on the Ducati where you know the bike was what you know 7th 8th ninth, that sort of thing yeah, it wasn't 2002, 2003 when they went through that long period of yeah. as well. This was where they're quite close, but MotoGP at the minute, if you're quite close, you're far away as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think, uh, I think if you looked at, um, uh, if you looked at the, just the gaps that they were from the front, uh, and, and just showed 
the gaps that they finished from the leaders. There's only been a couple of uh, there's only been a couple of races where it was properly embarrassing. Most of the time, it was you know a second, maybe two seconds away. But the trouble is, that two seconds now that can be five places rather than um, second, which is which is what it used to be. I mean, hats off to Dorna, hats off to Michelin as well. They've created an incredibly close, uh, incredibly close championship. We saw Yamaha make a step forward though over the course of the flyaways, whether it was Burry Ram or then in particular Phillip Island and Sepang. But what was the main reasoning behind what made them make that improvement? Um, it's hard to say. There seems to be a, uh, there, there seems to be a number of factors. Obviously, there's the, uh, the, the talk about, um, uh, the electronics. They've complained about the electronics. I mean, they basically got the engine wrong. Um, uh, not horribly wrong, just a little bit wrong. The, uh, the uh, crankcase is just a little bit too light. Um, uh, and so, and that's made the engine just a little bit too, aggra- too aggressive. They've tried to fix with the electronics. They struggled a lot with the electronics tr- trying to figure it out. They brought someone in, uh, Michele Gada from the World Superbike uh, paddock to, um, help them sort the extra le- electronics out. That made, that made a difference. Um, Bury Ram, Phillip Island, um, they had harder tyres, which were, um, the, the, the Amos still needs a little bit of a firmer carcass, then that firmer carcass helped them a little bit. Um, the nature of Bury Ram actually helped the fact that you're, uh, on the middle of the, uh, uh, on the, uh, on the middle of the tyre more than, uh, on the edge of the tyre. Um, and also a setup change. The fact that Maverick Vinales, I mean, Maverick has been, uh, extremely, uh, loud, demanding, uh, complaining. He's, you know, uh, almost declared warfare on his team from time to time. Uh, he obviously got rid of Ramon Forcada or, well, told Ramon Forcada that, uh, he's going to leave. Uh, they, they want a new crew chief. They'll have a new crew chief from next year. Um, all of these things are the. Uh, it's I think help put some emphasis on uh, in, uh, inside Yamaha. It's concentrated some minds. They changed. They they almost to get Maverick to shut up. They gave him what he wanted. They put more wear, uh, rate, uh, weight at the rear of the bike. That seems to have um, helped their tyre issues a little bit. It's given them uh, solved, uh, solved some problems. And um, uh, that, I think, that I think was the big, was the big step forward. Because uh, uh, Rossi did the same at Sepang. Um, and it, that worked really well for him at Sepang. It worked well for the both of them at uh, in Buriram, where they finished third and fourth and probably could have had... Uh, a little bit more if they'd if they'd really uh, I think at Buriram they were surprised to be competitive um, whereas you know at, at Sepang they they pretty much knew uh, they, they knew what they could do and um, that the, the, yeah I, I think those changes those setup changes all of these little small incremental changes motorcycle racing is about details it's about getting all of the little details right and they had a few little details missing and now um, it's the same thing Dovicio so earlier in the year at a certain point he was switching between the the wing using the wings and not using the wings in the end they gave up just stuck the wings on and then, because it's one less factor to work on, it means you can concentrate on that a little bit more. Maybe if they had lots of, you know, endless setup time, they could, at some tracks, they could be faster without the wings. Um, but they've got a, a package which works, so why do it? And I think Yamaha have been chasing their tails for too, for, for too long, and that's been, that, that's been the biggest problem. Yeah, and I think that sums up pretty much the season so far and what gave Mark that advantage in the championship. But just to follow on from what you were saying about Yamaha there, you know, the progress that Mark has made in terms of his consistency, it's put a lot of pressure on a lot of teams, a lot of pressure on different riders. But we saw in Sepang a different version of Marquez. We saw Marquez just hunting. And for me, it was probably the best ride of the year and the best race of the year, even though we probably had better, well, we have had better wheel-to-wheel battles and things like that. But for me, Sepang was a proper race where it was two riders at the absolute limit just hammering tongs the whole way through the race. They were within a tenth of a second, lap after lap after lap. And we saw what pressure does to a rider and 
that was where we saw Mark, for me, at his best through the course of this year, just where we saw just the, the step that he's made. He's always had less strong pace, but this was a race where Rossi was at his peak, as good as we've seen him ever. You know, this was, this was as good a race as you can possibly run at the front of a field, and Mark forces a mistake. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, yes, obviously it's easier for Mark because he doesn't have any pressure, doesn't have to worry about the championship. Uh, a championship is, is, is sorted. Uh, he can just race. He can afford to take the risk. Uh, you saw the amount of risks he was taking, like, uh, you know, a couple of laps before crash, uh, before Rossi crashed. Um, Marquez had his foot off the pegs. Uh, the front went, the rear went. Um, you know, that was riding at the absolute limit, absolute limit. Yeah, I remember turning to Neil in the middle of the race and just saying, one of these is going down. <laughs> and then a couple of laps later, it was Rossi that went down. But yeah. as you said, David, it could have been either of them. Yeah. Just because they were both on that limit the whole time. And that's what I, that's what made that race special for me. We've seen, as I said, better races in terms of, you know, Philip Island had a ton of riders at the front of the field. We've seen it over the course of the last three or four years, just flat out battles between riders with tons of overtaken moves at the front, loads of different bikes at the front. But this was two bikes that work in completely different ways, two riders that work in completely different ways, and they were within, you know, half a tenth, a tenth of a second of each other, pretty much the whole race. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, um, uh, I suppose if you wanted to draw an analogy, then, um, uh, a lot of the racing we've seen there has been sort of, you know, your, 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 your Thunderbird wine. It's been the cheap fighting juice that, um, gets everyone all excited. Whereas, um, the Rossi versus Marquez was very much a, a 24 year old, uh, uh, Scotch whiskey, I think. Um, very, very pure, very, very, uh, it was racing to steel that was absolutely in its absolute, the absolute essence of racing. It was two riders going as fast as they possibly could and, uh, and, and living on the edge. But you couldn't see it so much because there was always a gap between them, but they both knew where they were. They both knew they were chasing. They both knew, um, their limits. They both knew that this was not going to be easy. And that, um, yeah, it was, um, it was a, uh, it, it was a race for connoisseurs rather than a race for, um, it, you know, it's, it's not going to get the, uh, it, it's not going to attract the, the new fans, but for old fans, it was, it was an absolute joy to watch. And I have to say that for Rossi, that's, it was an outstanding race for, uh, for, for, for Rossi to be able to run that pace. The consistency, the consistency that he ran in those first, uh, I think sort of like, uh, I looked at 10 or 11 laps and he was within, um, a few hundredths of a second, uh, lap after lap, which is, uh, you know, Jorge Lorenzo. That's what Lorenzo used to do on the Yamaha. So that was, uh, that was really, really impressive. And I think, uh, in the end, all of Mark's practicing saves, came off um, because he walked away and the others uh, and, and Rossi uh, and, uh, and Rossi went down because Rossi couldn't save it on the uh, on the elbow and on the knee like um, uh, the, the way that Mark does yeah and I have to say David for a lot of the time whenever you're sitting there drinking your buck fast when you get the opportunity to sit there in a nice whiskey sometimes there's a lot to be said for it and I think that was definitely the case in Sepang where we got to see just that scrap and it was I always say whenever you know you're commentating on World Superbikes or when you're looking at uh, a MotoGP race the most important six inches on the track are the ones between your ears and we saw that in Sepang we saw Rossi forced into a mistake. He was riding at the absolute limit and he looks across this pit board lap after lap after lap and it says 0 0.9, 0 0.8, 0 0.7, 0 0.8, 0 0.7, 0 0.9. And he never broke away by more than a second really against Marquez. And when you're racing at that limit to get no benefit for it, yeah. it just ekes away at a rider at the front. And it's really difficult to stay in front when you can't break away from the other rider. And, uh, Marquez just forces that mistake out of Rossi. Yeah, I think also, I mean, it makes you wonder because uh, obviously, you know, there's no pressure on Mark because he already had the title in the uh, title in the bag, already wrapped up. If he crashes out, nobody cares. Um, uh, Rossi hasn't won since Assen last year. Uh, 26 races. Uh, yeah, 26 races now. Um, he's going in there. He's going in there. 25 races without a win. 
he can feel that he knows he's competitive. He knows he can do this. He knows he can pull this off. He knows he's got consistency and he can feel Marquez coming. Um, uh, I think there was a lot more pressure on uh, on Rossi than there was. And also just because you know, it's been such a long time, uh, you sort of forget, um, again, it's all about the details. You forget about the, 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 you know, the, the, the handling the pressure, coping with the pressure, all these things which you do just a fraction more naturally when you've, uh, you know, when you've won three or four races in a season. Yeah, winning's a habit. And if you're not in the habit, it can sometimes take a little bit of time to get yourself back into it. And Rossi, just with the pressure that comes from Marquez, maybe if he had won a couple of races already this year, maybe he's able to deal with it a bit more. But that heightened expectation of finally getting back on the top step can also play a role too. But you talk there about Marquez not being under any pressure really in this race. He's already won the championship. He's won a ton of races this year. Alex Rins was also a rider that you could say in a lot of ways was riding with no pressure over the course of that Sepang race as well. And he came through to finish second. But he's up against Zarco, Vinales and a couple of other riders in that race. You're up against a factory Yamaha rider. You're up against the top independent rider that's going to, that's, you know, over the course of the last two years really has impressed. And for Rins, this was another race where he was able to finish on the podium as fourth podium of the year. But it was another race where he could sort of fly under the radar a little bit. For me, the thing about Rins, especially at Sepang, was the fact that he turned up on uh, on Friday. Uh, Rins's problem has been um, that uh, on Fridays, you know, you end up... Uh, you, you, uh, by the end of Friday, then what you see is... Um, you know, he's, uh, he might not be in the top 10 or he might be just in the top 10. Uh, he's not been particularly, uh, it's not been particularly impressive. Um, uh, and then all of a sudden he, he comes to Sunday, they find something on Saturday and they find something on Sunday. And on Sunday, all of a sudden he's a lot more competitive. Um, uh, he's been punished, he's been, or he's been penalized by his poor qualifying. He's qualified badly a few times. Again, that's also something that they've, uh, uh, that they've struggled with. Um, uh, but when he sort of can put everything together, then he's ab- absolutely one of the best riders in the world. But it's also a sign of just how good the Suzuki has become. Uh, you said Rins has had four podiums. Andrea Iannone has had four podiums. Um, uh, you know, Iannone has looked like he's uh, looked capable of winning a race from uh, from time to time uh, uh, as well. He thought he could have won um, uh, Philip Island, obviously, because um, uh, he looked completely unbeatable during, during practice at, at Philip Island. And, um, uh, he managed to get himself caught up uh, in the early laps, and uh, and that was that was basically it. Yeah, and I think that uh, Ian One has definitely been one of the riders over the course of the second half of the year in particular, really has made that step forward. But Suzuki, as you said, David, really has made a lot of progress over the course of this year. Last year, they got completely lost with their engine. Obviously, they were locked into that engine last year. This year, they were able to make changes if they wanted to, but they were able to find the right solutions earlier. But it's the second half of the year, really, where we've seen all that progress being made by Suzuki. If you look at from Bruno onwards, You've got Rince up against Zarco for fifth in the championship and Rince has been able to pick up 35 points on Zarco since we came back in Brno. So it does just show how good of a job that Suzuki and Rince have done over the course of the last handful of races. Yeah, well, Rince said the big difference was the new engine which they got at Assen. Um, that had more power and that basically removed the last weakness that they had. So I think like the concession system has worked perfectly for Suzuki this year. Um, they... Uh, Managed to fix their problems. Um, the, the they weren't. It wasn't so much the, the the extra testing for them. It was more the extra. Um, uh, it was the, the the ability to change the engine mid, mid season. Um, uh, be, be, because you know, the, the end of the year, both of them, uh, you know, both Ian Oni and uh, and Rince, you know, and they've taken it in turns as well. It, it seems like there were very few races where you would see. You know, Rince finishing just behind Ianoni or Ianoni just behind Rince. You know, Rince would have a good race and then Ianoni would be nowhere and then vice versa. So it's, uh, the, the bike is good and it's going to be interesting seeing, you know, what Rince can do with another full year of, um, uh, because uh, he missed a lot through, through, through injury last year. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think he, well, it was, I think, 
Argentina where he where, where he injured himself last year, and it took him uh, the, the, you know about half a year to actually uh, to come back. Yeah, and that was on the back also of big crash in his first test on yeah. the MotoGP bike in Valencia five months earlier as well. So for Rins, this is where we've sort of seen him at proper fitness. But for next year, he's got the big challenge of actually being the team leader for that team as well next year, and that's a, a different challenge for him in year three in MotoGP yeah exactly but I mean I, I think in year three is the year by which you should be able to be you know the team leader by which you should be able to manage um, uh, uh, manage that development role um, uh, obviously he's a, he's a smart guy and he's a talented guy uh, you talk to the people at Suzuki and they're you know full of praise for him uh, for, for the way he works and for his feedback um, uh, and, and he's going to have to lead it, obviously, because he'll be a team with Joan Mir next year, a rookie who is, uh, you know, obviously plenty, plenty of talent, but you still have to step up and actually, you know, make that, uh, uh, make that step. Um, but at least the Suzuki, I think, uh, I think if you're going to move up, we saw this with Maverick as well, Maverick Vinales. Um, uh, it's a good bike to, change to it's a good it's a good bike to uh, for it to be your first MotoGP bike because it allows you to understand it's it's easy enough to understand what the bike is doing and and to get it to do the things that you were uh, that you do if you look at what's happened to rookies on Hondas for example with the exception of um, one particular rookie in 2013 um, uh, they've every rookie that's got on that bike has struggled uh, it's been it's been really difficult Speaking of rookies as well, David, we saw in Sepang probably one of the best races that we've seen, well, we saw from anyone on the day was from Hafi Siren and to be able to come through finishing the top 10 on the Tech yeah. And uh, that was a pressure filled ride. Like we saw him on the grid. He almost looked like he was in tears. He was getting hugs from everyone. And, you know, it looked like the pressure was going to be, I, I honestly thought he could down to turn one and he just crash at turn one. Yeah. Because there was that sense of expectation on him, but able to, come through with a really strong performance yeah I mean it was a really really good race for him um, uh, uh, he said he'd been inspired by Adam Norodin who's his friend who races in Motor 3 and uh, Norodin had um, I think started in pit lane and uh, made it up to the uh, made it up to the leading group um, and then uh, crashed out so he'd been sort of like so uh, sort of uh, perhaps he'd already had the emotional already had the emotional high, uh, highs and lows uh, and as a consequence, were felt liberated enough to actually go off and um, uh, do quite well uh, to to actually put in result. And but perhaps the, the very fact that he made it through the first corner without um, uh, um, without hitting anyone um, uh, and, and and crashing out that was what allowed him to actually do well for the rest of the race because he made up a lot of uh, he made up a lot of. I I think he made up something like uh, seven or eight positions on that first, uh, just on the run to the first corner. So he got a, he got a fantastic start. And obviously, you know, once you've got a good start, if you when, when you're passing a lot of people, it gives you a lot of confidence for the for the for the rest of the race. But yeah, as you say, keeping it together, together for the race in front of a an absolutely ecstatic crowd was um, uh, was pretty amazing. And the crowd, uh, hundred and something thousand, hundred and five. Yeah, that's it was packed and it's the one thing that I've seen a big change in over the years going to Sepang I remember the first time I went to Sepang I was told ah don't worry there'll be no one there traffic will be fine but it was the year after Fami Kyrodine had been a podium contender in Moto3 and he had finished on the rostrum on the uh, it was the Air Asia bike in 2012 he was riding and suddenly Malaysia had a star and ever since then the crowd's just grown and grown and grown and it's for me one of the best atmospheres of the year now is Sepang and on race day, it's it's like nowhere else. If you go down to turn one and you've got the huge grandstand down in towards turn one, you've got a grandstand on the outside of turn one as well. And the atmosphere there really is something special. And uh, it brings us in nicely to this weekend's race in Valencia as well. This is a, a special place to host the final round of the year because it's an amphitheater. If you sit in any of the grandstand seats, you can see everywhere on the racetrack. Yeah. Fans are in on top of the action and uh, it really does create something special here as well yeah exactly i mean it's uh, there's always a party atmosphere everyone's a little bit more relaxed even though everyone is also sort of exhausted from an entire season um, um and as you say i mean you know the the, the atmosphere that just the fact that it is actually in a bowl and you then and they cram a hundred thousand people into into this uh, uh, into this sort of crucible 
Um, uh, the, it, it, yeah, I mean, it really is. It really is amazing. Also, I mean, this um, the track itself is quite tight uh, because they're having to fit so much. They're having to sort of like spaghetti so much into. Uh, uh, so much track into a very small space but even then turn 13 I mean, I'm sure you've been up and stood up on the inside of turn 13 and um, uh, the one place where the fans can't come when you where, where you really feel special as a journalist that you can actually go outside and sit inside turn 13 and see them the way you get up close as a, a, you know watch them really sort of um, wring the neck hang the uh, uh, hang off the bike and, and, and hang it outside where it's through there is Really, really pretty, pretty spectacular. Yeah, for anyone that doesn't know, it's the one time a year where you can guarantee that Moto Matters is going to be trackside. <laughs> David, you always go up to have a look there because it is probably the best corner to watch yeah. of the entire season. You there's, look a, at- there's a few corners there which I always go and watch that. There is the, the, the one before turn 12, the, the, the right hand. And you get a really, and you see the bikes coming towards you. And you can get, you can get a really good look at um, uh, the way that they're braking and the way that they're pitching the bike into the into the corner. And then you can like see them from behind. You can see the way that they, uh, because they have to switch right and then left. And then you go around a little bit further, and you can see that you know the way that the the, the bike is behaving at full lean because they're at full lean for such a, a, a long time. And then you can go down, and because it's the, the horribly tight final corner. Um, uh, uh, that corner again is is a difficult corner. Um, I haven't been out there during, uh, ever been out there during uh, during a race, but I think it'd be a fantastic place to sit and to to, to stand at a race because just because there are a couple of lines possible through there, but it's uh, and you can pass through there. Um, but if you try, there's a you know there's a very decent chance that it's going to end in disaster. Yeah, the most interesting thing during a race to stand there is actually just to have a look and see how the riders change over the course of the race as their rear grip drops and they're relying more and more on electronics rather than mechanical grip. And it's interesting to see how they have to evolve over the course of the race. But uh, it's always one of the special places of the year. Yeah. And Valencia is good for that because there are, as you said, David, a couple of different places you can go here to actually get a good look, get up close to the bikes and be able to see how they're actually working. And it's the same for fans in a lot of sections of the track as well. If you're able to get to the right section of the grandstand, you can actually pick up on an awful lot about what the bikes are doing as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a few, there, there are, there's a few tracks which are absolutely fantastic for, for fans like that where you can actually really get a sense of them because you're close enough to the action to actually sort of like get a sense of what the, uh, what the riders are doing. I think, uh, for, for example, the, uh, the, uh, uh, Ramshook, the final corner before the GT chicane at, um, um, at Assen. If you sit up, there's a, that actually, there's, it's now a grand, they've turned it into a grandstand. It's one of the best places to sit. And there's, there's a banking a little bit before that. Uh, and if you watch the, uh, watch the bikes through there, you get a real sense of, of, of the speed. Mugello, uh, some of the places where you sit there, if you, um, uh, you get a real sense of, uh, uh, again, of the, uh, of the, the speed the bikes are, uh, are capable of. Um, uh, Valencia, you get a really good look at. You can also see how a race develops because you can actually see the whole track. You can, you get a real sense of, you know, who's where and who's doing what and who's coming forward and who's going backwards and all the rest of it. So you get, uh, um, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting place. Jerez, again, there are some, there's some of the grandstands, just the grandstands of Jerez. You've got a really, really good view. You're up, really up, up close to, uh, to the action. You get a really, a really good sense of what's going on. Okay. And David, as you said there, you get those opportunities to see what's happening over the course of a race at Valencia. You can see who's making the moves, who's going up and down. But just when we look back on the last three rounds of the flyaway, since we were last able to have a Paddock Pass podcast, just who's your big winner from those last three rounds? Um, uh, well, I mean, you have to say Mark Marquez because, um, you know, he wins, uh, he wins two races and becomes, uh, and becomes championship. Uh, becomes, uh, you know, wins the championship at Mategi in front of his Honda bosses. Um, uh, there's a lot of reasons that that's a good thing to do. One of the main reasons for uh, that it's a good reason to do is because he gets a, a chance to have a quiet word with the Honda bosses and say, look, this is what I'm capable of when you listen to me and do what I want. Um, because that's been a problem. Well, it's been a problem. Well, it's been a problem with the Honda forever, I think. 
Um, uh, but Hon, uh, but Marcus has spent a lot of time this uh, uh, the the past couple of seasons getting all of the all of the pieces in places in place to actually make sure that he gets listened to. They listen to his feedback. They do what he wants. Um, uh, that, that that I uh, so I think for me. Marquez, that's why Marquez is the big big winner coming out of this. Yeah, without being too much in agreement with you, for me the big winner is Honda because they've now been able to see that Mark is the most talented rider on the grid, the fastest rider on the grid, and he can develop that bike as he needs it to be. And over the course of this season, over the course of the last few years, we've seen Mark really develop his riding to get that point in consistency and you don't have the success that he's had without being able to give that feedback as well and himself and the crew around him mm. clearly have been able to develop that bike and that's where for me honda have probably been the biggest winner whether it's over the flyaways or over the course of the year it's just we've been able to really see the progress that marquez has made in terms of just having that knowledge that ability to transfer what he feels into the development of the bike and that's why just like what you said, David, as well, having won that championship, having done it in front of all the Honda bosses, that's why for me it's it's Honda over the course of the last three rounds. Yeah, and also they won the uh, manufacturers' uh, championship, and they're, and they're very well placed to win the team championship as well. So you know the triple crown. Um, uh, for most people, the only thing that really matters is the um, uh, um, is the is the title, is the riders' championship. Um, uh, the manufacturers' championship matters. Uh, I wouldn't say a lot, but it, it matters. Certainly matters to the um, uh, to the factories, um, and then for prestige, the teams as well. But uh, yeah, yeah, I always think that uh, motorsport, no matter what discipline it is, is the most individual sport in one way. And then it's the biggest team sport you'll ever see as well. And uh, the team element and the manufacturer's element of it can be forgotten about at times whenever you look and you see just the rider on the bike. But we've seen what happens whenever you don't develop the right bike. And that comes from the hundreds of people that are behind the scenes. If you don't develop the right bike, if you're making a mistake with the engine, like we've seen Honda do in the past, suddenly it doesn't matter who the rider is. It does, it does, it's just not able to get those results. It's a little bit like a, a mountain stage in cycling, isn't it, really? I mean, you've got, you, you have to have a huge team to actually get your, um, uh, to get your rider to, to the bottom of the last climb. But, um, uh, once they're at the bottom of the last climb, it's still completely up to, uh, up to them. They, they have to actually do it. They have to actually achieve. They actually have to, uh, get up that mountain as fast as possible. And so the, 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 the same with, with a manufacturer. They've, a huge team of people working together. First of all, this is a design and, uh, and develop a bike. Uh, then they give it to the team. The team has to um, uh, get that bike just right. And then once that's uh, once the bike is, uh, you know, they, they have to try and get fine tune it, optimize it, get the best performance out of it. But then in the end, you you give it to the rider, and it's and it's all it's all in the uh, ends up all in the rider's hands. It's down to, to them to um, to perform, and that's definitely what Marcus has done and Honda have done this year. And just on the flip side of the coin, then David, who's the biggest loser over the course of the last three rounds? I would probably have to say um, that the biggest loser is. Uh, it's actually quite hard. Actually, but I mean, there's the. That's the obvious answer. The obvious answer to KTM and, and, and Aprilia because they have just been sort of at a standstill. Um, uh, I think to an extent you can also say Ducati because Ducati, Ducati were expected to come away with um, probably a win at, uh, at Mategi. They were hoping for a win at uh, Sepang. They were expecting, you know, expecting a win at Sepang. Um, uh, both races where you know they just they just couldn't do it you know they just they they, they fell short of what they of their own expectations um obviously the, you know dobby crashing out uh lorenzo injuring himself um uh and then it's a pang um again dobby, uh, dobby looked really really fast but uh, during practice but um it just disappeared on on race day so i would probably have to say uh, in the end, Ducati. Okay, well, for me, I'm going to say Valentino was the biggest loser over the last three rounds. His teammates managed to win a race to break that duck for Yamaha, and Valentino had the opportunity to win his first race of the season, 
and crashed out in Sepang. So for me, even though we rode great in Sepang, I just think that that was this opportunity just to get back onto that top step, give himself some momentum going into the winter as well. And, you know, that was, it was such a good race. That's the main reason as well. It, it'll mean so much to Marquez to force that mistake. Mm. And uh, that can change the momentum very easily. And that's why for me, even though I thought Rossi rode one of the best races I've ever seen him race, he was for me the big loser from the three flyaways. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's a really interesting point. And I think what it emphasizes is how um, normally it's, been, it's really obvious who the, who the big winner is or the big loser is from, from a particular point. But I think this really emphasizes that uh, how complicated it is at the moment, how close it is. Because uh, again, you know, like Ducati for me, Ducati are, uh, are the big losers. And yet, look at what happened at Phillip Island. Ducati were actually really, really competitive. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Valentino, uh, Valentino's the big loser. Yeah, they were pretty uh, mediocre in Mutegi. Um, but they'd you know, come off third and fourth in, in Buriram. So it's, um, uh, everything is so close together that triumph and disaster are, you know, just, just a millimetre away. So David, that's the winners and losers sorted for this week's show. But uh, just when we look at uh, the new segment that we've added to the podcast over the last couple of months, the MotoGP monologues, I've got a question for you. You've got uh, 60 seconds or less, David. You can do it in less if you are so inclined. But 60 seconds, can Valentino win the championship next year for Yamaha? Um, it's not impossible. Um, I think, I mean, first of all, let's look at Yamaha. He has to beat his teammate. That is a, uh, that is a significant obstacle. Um, uh, the Yamaha needs improvement. Uh, there's been a lot of, there was a lot of talk during the flyaways of big changes coming inside the organization of Yamaha. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a different engineer, um, uh, then leading the MoGP project. I wouldn't be surprised if there were changes in senior management. I wouldn't be surprised if, um, uh, for example, Lynn Jarvis decides to take, um, uh, early retirement. Um, so these are changes which are already happening. Um, I think the losing 25 races was a, was a big thing for the, uh, for them. So I think that, um, uh, they can get the bike right. They're not that far off with the bike. They can get the bike right. There's a problem, Mark Marcus. Um, it's going to be really difficult for anyone to uh, be championship if their name is not Mark Marcus. And I'll tell you what, David, I'll write on the 60 seconds. People that say you can't work to work count and can't work to a time count, they don't know what they're talking about, David. But I have to say, it's it's always interesting to see what what's going to happen in, in the future. And that's where it's this week's test in Valencia and in Jerez is going to be really important just to be able to see if Yamaha are able to make those steps forward because they clearly need to find something. But over the course of the last few rounds, we've been able to see that they're not that far off. Yeah, exactly. And again, the, the, the set changes they made were uh, not about um, big changes. They were not about um, uh, you know getting more performance out of the bike. They were getting more tire endurance out of the bike. They were just making sure they, that the tire lasted uh, to, to the end, end of the race. And I think that shift in focus. Matt Oxley wrote quite an interesting column about that. That's to me, uh, it, it's a philosophical. Uh, approach, if you like, and I think uh, that change in philosophy is going to um, uh, pay off nicely for next year. But as I said, there's this um, Spanish gentleman who's going to cause them a certain amount of problem. Speaking of um, Spanish gentlemen who cause every other uh, uh, aspiring motorcycle racer a problem, Mark Marquez. Is Mark Marquez the greatest rider of all time? An excellent segue there, David. It's almost like we prepared this in advance. But for me, Marquez is now the best rider I've ever seen. And that, I don't say that lightly because I've always thought that Casey Stoner was the most talented rider I've ever seen. When I went to watch Trackside and when I saw him come through his career, he was always the rider that stood out to me as just being that little bit more special than anyone else. He had that feel in all track conditions for just understanding what the bike was doing underneath him. You used to hear him talk about track surface changes and then everyone would say, what's he complaining about? And a year later, the track would be resurfaced because they'd found out the bumps and things like that. Casey had that feel all the way through his career. 
And I don't say it lightly when I say Marquez is better than Casey Stoner because he's been able to add the stats to his name. And uh, just even what we saw in Sepang and what we've seen through the course of this year shows that he's got that consistency and just that drive to be able to consistently win. And that's why, for me, he's now turned himself into being that greatest rider I've ever seen. That's a... Let's see, how did you do? Oh, reset the time already. I would have, would have... It was bang on the 60 seconds, Dave. No need to worry about that. Uh, the, the consummate professional, Steve. The consummate professional. Um, that's all very well, Stephen English, but you're missing out one important fact. He's only ever ridden a Honda in MotoGP. Yeah, but he's also ridden Hondas when they were struggling, Hondas when they were quick, Hondas when there was better bikes on the grid, and he's been able to win on each of those different types of Hondas. And I think while it's nice to be able to say... Stoner won on two different bikes. Rossi's won on different bikes. I think there's no real doubt that if Marquez was put on any bike on the grid, he'd be able to get it to the front. Maybe not in a Prilia or a KTM right now, but if he's put on a Yamaha, if he's put on a Ducati, I think that there's little doubt that he'd be able to pick up race wins and challenge for a championship. And I think that for me, just the steps that he's made have been able to show, whether you look through his career in 125s, Moto2 and MotoGP, I just think that he's the most complete rider out there in terms of just that flat-out speed, and now he's been able to have that consistency to his bow. And when you look at the numbers in comparison to other riders, they're pretty staggering. Yeah. And I'm not, I've never really been a numbers guy, and that's why, for me, Stoner was always, for my money, the best rider I'd ever seen, despite the fact that he didn't have smaller capacity championships despite the fact that other riders had won more races than him despite the fact that there was a lot of things that could be used as a detriment about Casey in terms of being the best rider ever particularly the fact that his career was so short compared to other riders but Marquez I think he's now exceeded what I saw from Stoner and I didn't see Rossi in his pump. I wasn't in the paddock whenever Rossi was racking up his wins and you know Rossi in his prime against Marquez in his prime would certainly be a good battle, just like Stoner against Marquez in his prime would be something special. But I think when I look at it now, this is the golden era of MotoGP. This is the most competitive field we've ever seen. And there's one rider that over the course of the last five years has been able to win. Yeah, I mean, the uh, uh, Valentino Rossi fans will always point out when it comes down to numbers that um, uh, Valentino Rossi had a higher winning percentage in his first, I think, 100 races in MotoGP um, uh, than Mark Marquez did. But the counterpoint to that is that Valentino Rossi wasn't racing against Valentino Rossi, whereas Mark Marquez was. So um, I think it's a more competitive field that he's had to perform against. And also a more competitive Rossi. Like yeah. Rossi for, despite his age, and we all talk about his age, but Rossi's as good now as he ever was, and he works harder now than he ever did. Yeah, and I think that's the, 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 I mean, the most interesting development for me is the fact that Rossi went from being uh, the natural talent who never had to bother to um, someone who lives a much more dedicated life trains harder, works harder, concentrates harder, does all of that, does everything harder because he still has that hunger to, to, to win. Yeah, Rossi went from being George Best to being Cristiano Ronaldo, where he went from drinking, partying and just relying on talent alone to then suddenly, as he got older, as suddenly the field got more competitive, as the bikes got better around him, he had to work harder on it. And as you get older, you do have to work harder at these things because your fitness doesn't come as easily, your reactions don't aren't as quick, and there's a lot of things that work against you. But there's a lot of riders that can't, or a lot of sportsmen that can't make that adjustment from relying on talent. Not saying that Rossi didn't work hard whenever he was younger. Obviously, he did. But he didn't work as hard as he has to work now. And that's where I think everyone's respect for Rossi is so high just because he's dug in. And yeah. for the last 10 years, he hasn't necessarily been the best rider on the grid, but he's outlasted people yeah. to still be on the grid. And I think a good comparison for Rossi as well over the course of those last 10 years, Serena Williams. Serena Williams, one of the best tennis players that's ever lived. And she's outlived her competition over the course of many generations of talents. And she's been able to consistently challenge for Grand Slams, win tournaments and be, you know, world number one. And Rossi's like that as well, where he's had to evolve, reinvent himself 
and he consistently finds a way to do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that dedication to actually changing, learning and adapting and all the rest of it is, um, uh, I think, probably the most impressive thing uh, thing about him. Um, uh, I mean, you say, you know, Marcus is probably the best rider of all time. Um, a counter-argument to that might be that um, I think Valentino Rossi is without question the most important motorcycle racer of all time for everything beyond just riding. He did the winning, he did the racing, but he's transformed Italian racing. There's uh, the, the VR46 Academy. You look at the riders, uh, Bezecchi coming up. Um, a lot of people are very excited about Bezecchi. A lot of people are very excited about Bagnaia. Um, or all of these uh, Italian youngsters are going to make a huge, huge uh, impact on the sport in the future. Um, and uh, yeah, that's truly truly really really uh, uh, really impressive so the legacy he leaves behind uh, the, the way that he's popularized the sport across the world the, the legacy he leaves is is that i don't think anyone will match that even though i think that mark marquez is, is a more talented motorcycle racer yeah and i think that's fair enough i think that talent alone isn't what allows you to transcend the sport whether it's muhammad ali michael schumacher valentino rossi there's certain Pele, Maradona, there's certain elements that go into being able to transcend the sport and a lot of it comes down to your personality and your ability to make people gravitate towards you. And uh, for Rossi to be able to take what he's been able to achieve and then set up his academy and just bring through all of those Italian talents. And he's basically made the Italian Federation completely irrelevant. He's well, the, been the, the writer thing, that's, it, that's done it all. Yeah, because the Italian Federation was basically irrelevant. That was the reason that he had to set up his, uh, he, he had to set up his, his academy. I had one, um, senior Italian team uh, member say to me that uh, without Valentino Rossi, uh, there wouldn't be Italian racing. Uh, you know, it would be, it would be absolutely sort of on its bottom. Well, to be honest, if it wasn't for Valentino Rossi, we wouldn't be making a living either. <laughs> so, uh, we got, we got the, the chance to look forward to one last race this season and uh, we'll make sure to be able to get a Paddock Pass podcast out a little bit quicker this time rather than what we've had over the course of the last three weeks. But uh, just looking forward to Valencia. It should be a really good race. It should be a, a chance for everyone just to end the season on a high and I'm really looking forward to it, David. Yeah, and it's going to rain for three days. so um, uh, that Never rains in the media centre. We should be fine as long as it's not a Mizano yeah, situation well, it, it again. It rains in pit lane, mate. Well, that's why you earned the big bucks, Dave. <laughs> right, yes, yes, yes. But thanks for joining us again, David, and uh, thanks for listening. And uh, as I said, we'll be able to bring a new Paddock Pass podcast to you, hopefully just after this weekend's race in Valencia and during the course of the MotoGP test as well. So thanks for listening, and see you all soon. Can Valentino win the Valentino. Valentino win the championship next year? Okay.